Oh, hello there, everyone. Welcome to Citizen Reporter, the podcast that used to focus on underreported news. I've sort of dropped that tagline. This podcast is about life, things happening, learning from the world around us, and indeed that often involves commentary. For me, my name is Mark Fonseca Rendeiro on the internet. They usually call me, to have a, a shorter version of my name, they call me Bicycle Mark. You can call me call me just don't call me late for uh how's that go well welcome to the program um i started with a little theme music here that i haven't used before that's uh, pictures of the floating world that's from the free music archive nice to have kind of motivational music sounds like we're gonna climb a mountain today or conquer something but no this is not a podcast about conquering anything today we're gonna take a little walk through some observations perhaps things that you've also thought about, uh, things happening in the world when it comes to economics or, or maybe not even economics, what people are doing to make money. That's what we're going to talk about. And, uh, and other thoughts. Be right back. So there's that. Okay, the song ended. Uh, no stopping today. I, I, many times with podcasts, ladies and gentlemen, to take you a little bit behind the curtain, uh, I'll do a lot of production where I'll move pieces afterwards. And I recently acquired a audio interface. And all that means is I'm not using a mixer anymore. And I can now separate the music goes over there. We'll even have some audio from uh, from my browser, from videos, all Creative Commons, all <laughs> open licensed. But now I can do that without mm, taking a lot of time after I do the actual recording. Uh, so if you're a longtime listener, uh, welcome back. I know the program is few and far between these days, but uh, hey, perhaps that makes each one even more special in that sense. And if you're new, well, welcome to a podcast that's been around for a really long time. Seriously, longer than those other podcasts. Does it make it any better? Probably not. Does it mean that I know a few things? I like to think so, but in the end, it doesn't really matter. That's the amazing things about podcasting, about life. Um, some people have been here a really long time. Others are just recent arrivals, and and sometimes it, that just because you've been around a long time doesn't mean your place will be uh, reserved, held. You'll be considered special. You'll be remembered even. Oh, this sounds so sad. But this is actually leading to what I do want to talk about today on the program. Um, now, at the risk of sounding like some kind of internet uh, TED Talk uh, or something like that, I do want to talk about the <laughs> sit down uh, or, or just you know hold tight the sharing economy. Okay, forgive me, I use the word, but you've heard it right? You can't get away from it. And if you have managed to escape it, uh, I, I, I admire you and I'm sorry to have broken that streak. There is this term being thrown around excessively uh, to the point that the definition becomes very vague. It's the sharing economy. What comes to mind when I say sharing economy? I, I can see your thoughts. Airbnb came to mind. Oh, you over there. I see your thoughts. Uber came to mind. Uh, a few rebels out there thought of blah blah car, and you're probably European, or in Europe anyway. So uh, there we can list. You know more than me, probably, of the the services or businesses, activities related to the sharing economy that are going on these days, and. Oftentimes, when we talk about them, when someone writes about them, it's it's talked about in a sort of mix of fascination, admiration, a lot of positives, right? As I take a sip of white tea from China, very good, very good white tea. I got it at uh, well, never mind where I got it. Uh, so uh, I'll I'll drink my tea to slow down the cadence sometimes of this this speech, this talk, this program. But so, right, sharing economy, right? For me, it's like, if I try to define it without looking, it's like services or, or not even, even services sounds too vague. Things that people do for one another, but it's not quite a traditional business at the way it's structured, the way it works, but it also isn't completely out of the kindness of their hearts either. So like some of you, I long ago was a couch surfer. And that means 
as of 2006, I was, when I would take a trip somewhere, I would go to couch surfing. Actually, even before there was hospitality club and I would find someone who was offering a place to stay uh, and their house for free. Now, why would they do this? You may wonder. Well, because they got to meet new people because they had space because they wanted to help someone treat someone have this special and 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 somewhat hard to find experience which is a stranger staying at your house right in many of our societies that's not allowed anymore depending on where you live so um that was hospitality club that was couch surfing which still exists uh, although it's changed somewhat at least uh, the way the website works and so forth but then uh, eventually you come to this era 2014 2015 where they put money into it so take couch surfing someone being genuinely welcoming for you to stay in their house in exchange for nothing you know in exchange for hello in exchange for a little friendliness um now insert money and although i'm not going to hand it to the person because it's all done virtually there is a fee for staying in that person's house i don't know to cover the cleaning to cover whatever, the services, and yes, a little bit of profit or a lot of profit. It all depends. So this is where the word sharing economy starts to really enter the conversation. I mean, before it was just, what do we used to call it, people? Does anybody remember? Community? Uh, giving? I don't know. Sharing? <laughs> okay, there's the word sharing, but we didn't say economy. It wasn't an economy. It was just people doing things for one another, uh, experimenting with what the internet could organize, which is still very fascinating and important and significant. I mean, I say this as we, as we are in a podcast experience right now, right? So that's fine, but let's look at an official definition, right, of, of the sharing economy. Um, let's see. It's, uh, you know, I don't even have one in front of me. I thought I did, but I don't. So, but, but Rachel Botsman, in in fast company which is a, a website i occasionally read like this is last may she's writing about the confusion around what's the sharing economy what counts as sharing economy what doesn't um and she actually starts by saying that uber now uber being the car service or driving service p- matching people who have cars that want to drive with people who need a ride right and much to the chagrin of well lots of forces in this world And she says, you know, Uber confuses the issue because um, it's not quite the sharing economy. And she tries to lay out key criteria to make something uh, to determine if some if a company is in the sharing economy or not. Uh, And her way to do it is sort of filter them against. Let's see, I'm going to read this. Try to filter them against clear criteria versus definitions. Okay, five key ingredients to truly collaborative, sharing-driven companies. This is from Fast Company, Rachel Botsman, 2015. So the first one, the core business idea involves unlocking the value of unused or under, underutilized assets, right? Uh, so, so something that was there the whole time that wasn't being used. Now, that could be you with your extra bedroom in your house. That could be you with that extra spot in your car. Uh, there's always been a fascination with this idea of and for good reason, especially in an era where we realize limited resources, waste. Uh, you know, I don't know if you guys have ever been to the U.S. or maybe you're in the U.S. right now. Maybe you're driving uh, as we speak because this, uh, I wanted to give a driving example. But in my home state of New Jersey, and I know you guys, I think out in California, there was a such thing as a, a carpooling lane or HOV it was often called. And that idea was that if you if you wanted to use this lane, which was like this exclusive lane, usually on the left, you had to have more than one person in the car. This was at the sort of height of traffic and realizing that so many people in their cars were alone. So this was an attempt to get us to be more uh, a reward for being more efficient. Right. Anyway, that was not the sharing economy, but I see, you know, echoes of it. So uh, underutilized or untapped uh, 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 value, right? Value is, well, I don't need to tell you what value is. So next one on her list, the company should have clear values-driven mission and be built on meaningful principles, including transparency, humanness, authenticity. Uh, So, you know, now it gets a little harder, 
Transparency, okay. I don't need to think too hard about that. Humanness, right? This is very interesting, very important. This is part of what, uh, even in podcasting, I find essential. If it doesn't feel human, that takes something away. It, it makes it less special. That's what radio lost. It wasn't very human. It was all artificial. Okay, but 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 podcasting isn't really in the sharing economy. So let's let's step away, or maybe it belongs there. But okay, it's not associated. But let's look at. Airbnb, right? Uh, there is a human element, a humanness, an authenticity um, that is, it comes through usually when you stay in somebody's space, in somebody's home. It's real, it's their place, it's organized with love or <laughs> something like that. And when you meet them and they welcome you, that's that's a special connection. That's something that in traditional economy had become uh, although way back, maybe it wasn't, but had become much more difficult, right? If you go into Kmart, nobody makes you feel like, you know, you're entering their their home or their home shop or whatever. Um, when you stay at a hotel, as much as they insist, you know, we're very welcome, it's still, it's a hotel, right? It doesn't feel that human, although it can be done in some more humane ways. Okay, let's, let's go on. Uh, providers on the supply side should be valued, right? Okay. Okay, empowered, and the company's committed to making lives of these providers economically and socially better. So, uh, the supply side should be valued. So, you as a driver, if Uber is in the sharing economy, you should be valued by the company and, and shown that you're valuable. Um, you who provide the service, let's forget about Uber, um, you should be appreciated for what you do, not just for the service. Yeah, okay, I can see that, uh, depending on the service. Customers on the demand side should benefit from the ability to get goods and services in more efficient ways. So there's that efficiency thing, right? Uh, you pay for access, not ownership. It's not your car, it's not your house, it's not your, I don't know, dog walker, whatever. Last one, because I'm getting bored with this list. The business should be built on distributed marketplaces, decentralized networks, right? A uh, sense of belonging, community building. Now that couch surfing had a community. Didn't matter where you went. There were couch surfers. They would get together here in Amsterdam. I've met on a few occasions. The couch surf, what, what, people who felt themselves to be the couch surfing community. Uh, there, I'm sure there were plenty that didn't want to meet anybody. That these people did, and they were the people who collectively or individually would provide places for people. So you're supposed to feel like part of a community. Now, we could debate where and when this does occur in today's big uh, so-called sharing economy services. Um, you know, what occurs to me as I look around, so I live in Amsterdam, I live in a neighborhood which is very popular with tourists, um, haven't lived in this particular neighborhood very long, but in the city, of course, I've been here for over a decade and, uh, and I know how important tourism is. Doesn't matter where you are in town, you will encounter tourists, but this area where I'm in, it's especially touristic. Uh, it's very hip, very cool. So, you know, I get to see a lot of the so-called sharing economy for tourism, all the services related and how they get used. And, you know, the one thing that occurs to me over time, especially because, I got to see, and again, I'm sure many of you too, I got to see these things change. I got to see Airbnb in the early days and how it was a short list of places to stay, uh, depending on where you were going. And there was a special connection, humanness. I want to go back to the humanness thing. But as time passes and you look at the, the word, you know, the word scale, right? Growth, the numbers, as the numbers increase, the stuff that was fun, I want, to, I want to include fun here, genuine, special, it actually, that stuff gets lost. It stays profitable, value, value. Maybe, maybe it stays human. It really depends on who you are, right? Um, but I find that these features that once created the real value, the real what was special, the real sharing of the sharing economy, it just mostly becomes an economy, um, it's, it's business. It's just business when it comes down to it. And the part of the reason this happens is because it gets so big. How are you supposed to keep the humanity in it? I mean, you yourself, if you have a Airbnb, and this is more for people with experience, 
uh, on in this area, and you see constant people coming in, coming out, going, coming and going. Uh, after th- two, three, four, five years, are you treating everyone as special as you did that first time, or does it become routine? Or maybe even worse, maybe you expand, right? You get two or three places. Can you be as human with each place and each person, especially if you're successful? Um, you may say, yes, I can. And I would say, great. But I find that as I watch the Airbnb case, as I even watch the Uber case, let's take it even to a different area we haven't mentioned yet, crowdfunding, right? And here is something that touches me personally, this podcast itself. And thank you to those who, who have helped crowdfunded two particular projects, one on my own, just you and me, and one with Christopher Lydon. And we crowdfunded, and it's the power of crowdfunding, I think, is clear, right? Uh, Being able to pool money directly from people who are interested in seeing something be realized, something come into existence, going past that whole need to find some middle person, right? But, But what happens when everyone crowdfunds everything and we're on our way to this reality. I play ultimate frisbee, right? And uh, here in Amsterdam, and there are plenty of international tournaments. Not only that, there are plenty of national teams that want to send their best players to international tournaments and that can be expensive and frisbee is obviously not a well-funded sport, uh, but what you increasingly see over the last years is National teams, the Dutch national team being one, but they're not the only ones, will seek to crowdfund some of their activities, some of their, to get to a world championship. All fine and good and wonderful, in fact, because we can all come out and support in our small or large way. The thing is, what happens if every Frisbee team from a country is crowdfunding? You can say, well, that's fine because each team has their supporters. Okay, but maybe I should keep it broader you know, if every journalist, if every inventor, if every, I I was at a tea ceremony this past weekend, wonderful tea company, speaking of my white tea that I'm going to take a sip of, they're doing a tea ceremony to promote their, what they're bringing from China, wonderful tea. Uh, They're called Tea Adventure, by the way. Maybe I'll put in a link. I don't know because, you know, will they enjoy being talked about in this manner? Well, we'll see. But um, they are talking about crowdfunding the production, the importation and production in the end of tea here to the Netherlands for people who are interested. Now, it makes sense on many levels. The problem I have is that every company, small and medium and maybe even large, but definitely small, they are crowdfunding something. There's so many choices, so many projects all perhaps worthy of our money and our attention. The problem is it becomes extremely competitive. So, you know, if you crowdfunded something six years ago, six years, yeah, uh, compared to now, I would argue that it's not as special of a connection. Now, you may still be able to find it, thankfully. It's not the end yet. We're not at the saturation point. But I think we're we're not at that moment in the beginning when something was beautiful in its origin. And I think part of the reason is scale. That's the problem with the world generally. It's so hard to keep things honest, keep things <laughs> what they, <laughs> what was special about them to begin with as it grows, as it gets bigger. I don't know what you want to choose here. Countries, continents, it's all very difficult uh, to scale, to scale. Uh, look at what happens with elections. <laughs> so many good people out there, but when you when you scale these things to a large, large audience, bad things can happen. Uh, so anyway, uh, I think that, that you know there is a fundamental problem with the sharing economy, and this existed even with the free stuff, the couch surfing. The bigger that it got, the more articles that were written in big newspapers back in the day about couch surfing, the more you ran into, I definitely did, ran into cases of people that were hosting that were <laughs> creepy, that were had some side intentions, some, it, basically, <laughs> they wouldn't have been part of this economy or community 
they would never have been reached except that the thing kept growing, right? Kept bringing in more and more people. Now, I sound like, and I may actually, without realizing it, I sound like I'm advocating for exclusivity to keep things small. And I didn't really know that's where I would end up here, but I think there's something to the idea of keeping things small. Maybe maybe that's something that many people who run businesses who who run ha, families uh, have have realized before. Uh, but there's there's something that is lost when things scale. Now, does that mean things that things shouldn't grow? Does that mean that if there's a service that provides that makes use of extra rooms or extra space in cars that it shouldn't grow? Uh, that only some people should be allowed to get it. The answer should be no. <laughs> the catch is what happens when you allow it to continue to grow. And I mean, this is where a company's principles, an individual's principles can can make a big difference. Uh, that's why it's interesting who's in charge of these initiatives. Um, so, so, you know, I know it does work for many people. Uh, it will continue to work. And uh, I, I just think that something is lost and I'm sad. I'm not sad about it. I think I think it's important to acknowledge because so often we have that, that thing, you know, like with um, the mobile devices, phones, whatever. We believe that it's all going to be good. All this stuff, all these innovations, it's got to be good because it's so cool. It's so different. It's so new. But the truth is not always that. Uh, there's plenty of gray area uh, in this is it good, is it bad discussion. So, and actually it makes me think of podcasting because indeed, you know, if everybody produces a podcast, on the one hand, you can say, wow, fantastic, that's as it should be. Everyone should have a voice. On the other hand, ow, we have a problem, a potential problem. There are so many podcasts that if the goal was to connect people with other people, to listen, to speak, to communicate, well, it's going not it's not going to work for everyone. Something will be lost if 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 it grows to such a level. Um, again, am I advocating for keeping it small that only some people should be able to podcast? How can I, right? When I've when I myself was able and and allowed to, to get into this world. So you can't exclude people if you yourself are a person and have been allowed to get into something. So this is such a catch 22 or, or such a such a complicated matter. I guess the answer is absolute. You have to keep allowing it to grow, allowing more people to participate. And whatever happens, negative or positive, you just got to deal with it because you have no right to stop it. Well, I guess, I guess that's how it goes. Um, you know, I wanted to include a different voice and I don't have any guests on the line or anything, but I was uh, fishing around for wh what's been said, especially in the last year or two. And I ran into Yokai Bankler of the Harvard Law School. Uh, you may remember him from such classics as Steal This Film or his book, The Wealth of the Network, or The Wealth of Network and the Sunlight Foundation. That's a, a an institution he's involved with. It's not earth shattering. Uh, but I think, you know, it's, it brings us back into, uh, both positives and negatives in this sharing economy, both of which should be kept in mind instead of just blindly running forward saying, this is awesome all the time, no matter what, cause it's not always awesome. Anyway, let's hear Yokai because, uh, I don't even know what he says in this entire clip. I've only heard half of it. So here we go. Great to be here with you. Um, 2014 was um, the year, if you will, of the sharing economy or the uberification of all services. And we talk about insurance and regulatory issues, but the critical issue is the destabilization of the firm and the fine division of labor and how it reorganizes potentially the entire services sector. And the critical question around that is this. Will it allow embedding economic production in the same kind of social solidarity trust models that we saw with the emergence of Wikipedia? Or will the externalization of risk onto the people formerly known as employees create severe disruption. 
Karl Polanyi described the Industrial Revolution in terms of a double movement, where on one side, market forces try to tear themselves away from social obligation in order to increase the mobility of capital and labor, while social forces counter-push in order to prevent the market from creating massive depredations. What we saw in the first 15 years of the internet was that social solidarity, trust, cooperation, social models that had been centrally social and peripheral economically came to be used to produce things instead of through markets, firms, or the state across the domains of knowledge production. Commons-based management of inputs and outputs organized along social lines like free and open source software, displaced the boundary of the firm to produce some of the very central components that gave us the internet and that great knowledge utility, Wikipedia. What we saw in addition was a massive explosion of fan culture, of amateur culture, of self-creation of all cultural products, and perhaps most importantly from the perspective of democracy, the emergence of citizen journalism as a central part of decentralizing power over the setting of public agendas to a much wider uh, range. Perhaps the most important was that what was theoretically impossible, collaborative motivations that are based on the social uh, uh, and moral, came to be a solution space of everything from fundraising for artists through a, a better government and to disaster response systems. What we've seen in the last five years is that the social model for sharing and increasing optimization of resources like couch surfing gets displaced in part by things calling sharing economy as though they are when in fact they are an on-demand economy. Not replacing the social for the firm, but replacing an ever finer division of uh, labor. This is now exploding across all of the domain of services from dog walkers to on-demand physicians. And these together raise the question of whether across this entire domain of services, not only knowledge, we will see increasing flexibility and utilization, or as this series of lawsuits from the last two, a few months suggests, an externalization of risk onto this population so that instead of just flexibility and independence, we're also getting extreme disruption. This will not be primarily determined by technology, but by institutions. The same technological and economic components that gave us citizen science and open source software like Foldit and GitHub also powered the first online labor market, Amazon Mechanical Turk. But Amazon Mechanical Turk was alienated and without a shared sense of solidarity and trust. It's not impossible to build systems that will incorporate the social into the economic. It depends on what firms do, it depends on what NGOs do, it depends on what policy do, but it is a critical requirement that we build systems that reincorporate the social into the economic. Just as the poor law of 1834 created a national labor market, increased flexibility, increased labor flow, but at the expense of the depredations of Manchester and London, created a century of battles, instability, and ultimately collapse of the long 19th century, so too the $5 day was the beginning of the solution that the 20th century gave. If you look at Google Trends, you see that Occupy was a transition point in American debates over income inequality. And that marked this clash for the first time. For 15 years, the social was embedded in the economic and the social was embedded in the political. In the last five years, they're diverging. The same power of social production that allows for tremendously effective social mobilization is now coming to bear against the social disruption that these new economic models are building as they extend from knowledge production to services. If we cannot solve that tension, we are in for severe disruption. Thank you. Wow, that was... Uh... Yeah, I almost was caught off guard at the end because it's so brief and so concise. Um, but it made me think of so, so many things if I start from the end there. Uh, by the way, if, if, if you want to know his name again, I'll, I'll include it in the links. But that's Yochai Yochai. I'm not very good with, he's Israeli. Yochai Yochai, Y-O-C-H-A-I. 
Bankler. And I apologize because I love names and I would like to always know how to pronounce them, but I didn't, I didn't research how to pronounce it. So Yokai Bankler, very interesting. I didn't know how interesting he was uh, until just now. And yeah, he brings up a lot of interesting things. The social, the need to introduce the social, you know, sharing economy. It lacks the word social, doesn't it? And a lot of these applications that we're talking about, if they have any social elements, they're so minor, they're so small, and they seem to become smaller over time. And that, to some extent, is also a decision of a of a company, which he brings up, you know, it's, it depends on the firms. So it's not just, I'm blaming size and scale because I find size to be such a factor in how well things go, how, how, you know, look at, look at Twitter, right? You've heard this. If you use Twitter, because I know many people don't, I know the younger generation doesn't. So Twitter is now a tool for I don't know, 25 to 55-year-olds. And who knows, it, it, it may never reach uh, this younger generation for good reason. But what's happening with Twitter? When it first started, it was interesting because you could speak directly to people you normally could not. For some of it for technological reasons, some of it actually for, for sort of social reasons. You know, you were famous. You're not allowed to talk to someone who isn't famous. You're a professional, you're not allowed to talk to an amateur or there are barriers to these things. You have to get over these barriers, know somebody. Twitter broke down a lot of those barriers and that was amazing and useful. I've learned tons. You guys continue, and I, I think some of you are among them, to help me so much, even with just the production of my other podcasts, uh, and perhaps this one as well occasionally, w with getting guests, because I just ask. I, I, I mean, I usually try on my own, but if I need your help, I ask and you help. And that is an amazing thing, right? But what's also going on, as you know, is Twitter becomes this place where the worst version of someone gets let out, where uh, criticism, but also hatred, uh, blame, uh, negativity insult is just standard. It's just standard. Things you would never say in real life, you'll say on Twitter. And and that now extends to other. Uh, it'll extend to Facebook to some extent. Oh, I used the word extend twice. So, you know, again, I'm going to look at the scale factor there because it's gotten so big, so mainstream, so for anyone. Um, but but it's an interesting point that uh, Mr. Bankler brings up. You know, it also has to do with the decisions of firms, the way they run it. And I do wonder what Twitter will try to to bring back the civility, which is falling apart. I mean, YouTube comments, it's a, it's a lost cause almost. I think YouTube is just kind of, you know, lifting the drawbridge and uh, retreating to the keep because you can't you can't win the battle out there beyond the walls in the comments so just find some some other place to hide or or maybe they'll roll out some interesting feature uh so you know that that's um an interesting element to all this again i'm not the first one to bring these things up i'm actually the last one so welcome to to one of the last people to discuss this um and and you know let's look at uber for a a brief couple of minutes. Um, look, the hard part with Uber for several reasons, but one of them is it's hard to know if criticisms of Uber are coming from a an honest place. What do I mean by that? Well, so many criticisms of Uber come from, let's start with the taxi drivers. I even have a clip from uh, the New York City taxi alliance taxi workers alliance and we'll just briefly listen to a representative which i cannot tell you if uh she is truthfully uh criticizing something or well look in the end none of us are objective so she's definitely influenced by the the needs and experiences of taxi drivers and surely an uber or a pro uber person is is influenced by their own thing i'm also biased, so don't expect anything much here. But the hard part with criticisms of Uber is they so often come from people who don't, doesn't matter what interesting, useful, uh, beneficial human elements exist in Uber, they don't want any change to the status quo. And that is one of the problems with, let's say, taxis, right? Taxis are very expensive in a city like New York. 
Why? Okay, quality of life is high. Okay, uh, running a taxi company is expensive for good, for for reasonable reasons, and for for a lot of crappy reasons as well. So you know, it's 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 hard to just go. I agree, Uber is a problem because so many of the arguments are coming from a place that is to preserve, just to preserve the status quo. And I, despite my age and my general old manishness, uh, I'm not just out to make judgments based on we should keep things exactly the way they are. Um, I want to make judgments on better criteria than that. So it's, it's, it's difficult because a lot of the criticisms are not coming from a, a really sort of open-minded place. Uh, and that's where I wish I could start from or as, as close as possible. Uh, here's a quick clip from the Laura Flanders show, also via CC license. Uh, not always a fan of the Laura Flanders show, but that doesn't matter. Uh, she had an interesting guest and I thought I would share it. Here's, uh, ba- oh, come on now. Bahravi Desai, co-founder and director of the Taxi Workers Alliance of New York. Uh, Bahravi, if you're listening, uh, no disrespect, you seem to know what you're doing. And, uh, well, you know, here you go. So, you know, simple mathematics, right? If you have 150,000 fares that are being divided among 10,000 drivers versus 150,000 fares being divided by 2,000 professional full-time drivers, you see the difference in the income that each worker is taking home. Uber, meanwhile, is still making money off of all 150,000 fares. Now, the consumer, though, I know in a place like New York, San Francisco, where Uber began and other cities, too, says it's just so convenient. You can just push a button. They can see the little thing telling them that their taxi is coming. There's a reassurance factor. There's a no-hassle factor that they don't have to get out their credit cards. Um, Speak to the consumer for a bit, because they might say, hey, if your taxi was as easy to hail as you'd like, I'd be using that any day. <laughs> well, you know, Uber did not invent the software, you know, the, the app, the e-hailing app. That predates Uber, and it's, it was popular before Uber. What is really important to understand is what Uber has done is actually brought in a new economic model into the private transportation industry. So talk about that. That model, which they call, quote-unquote, ride-share, even though it's not a peer-to-peer economy, mm-hmm. um, and as you said, the you know, Associated Press no longer uses that term, what it fundamentally means is that any unlicensed private vehicle operator, so they don't have a professional driver's license or a commercial vehicle or commercial insurance, they are able to get jobs dispatched to them for hire using the Uber app. Mm-hmm. Lyft and Sidecar, few of these companies coming out of Silicon Valley have that same kind of a model. The reason it's so problematic from our perspective is, you know, 30 years ago, the, ind- the taxi industry brought in the present-day model of leasing, where drivers went from being commissioned employees to independent contractors with no you know, minimum wage guarantees, right to collectively bargain, any basic labor protections. Well, today, 30 years later, under this quote-unquote rideshare model, we're being told we're not independent contractors, we're just not workers at all. Mm. That- all right, so I'm going to hold her up right there. Um, you know, this this becomes somewhat a, a New York issue, um, but it's it is interesting. You know, this whole question of what do people want? Uh, people, people being the drivers, people being the the customers, people being the existing taxi drivers. Uh, but definitely, you know, a lot of those existing drivers for taxi companies they're currently winning this battle in a lot of cities, and some of it is done through legitimate policy uh, uh but there's also the whole question of violence and s- action you know you see it in i've seen it in a few cities in europe uh where you know you you resist this change because it's a threat to your existence whether or not your existence is still justified is is fairly priced all these things no 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 uh so this brings me to sort of one of my 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 almost concluding remarks or thoughts It's that um, in the end, no matter how much there are policies to regulate, slow down, control Airbnb, uh, Uber, whatever, you name it, there are policies from existing institutions that usually that have a business model built on this stuff uh, or, or just, you know, 
don't know what to make of these new developments. The policies that keep them out, that seek to hold them back. Um, and, and although that's working, like that's succeeding in some places in the world, it just seems like no matter how much you try to slow it down, you will lose in the long run. Um, even if it's terrible or there are terrible elements to it, uh, for neighborhoods, for jobs, for relations with people, with one another, it seems like the short-term benefits, the technological convenience, this basic logic, but you know, it's, it's well-founded logic, uh, all point us towards these developments. Uh, forget what happens later. We'll, we'll figure that out. I could be wrong. Anybody could be wrong or right. Um, but holding these things back, I have to admit, does seem like, and anyone who, who says otherwise, I think is lying to themselves. It's like you're, you're piling up sand uh, to try and hold back the ocean, you know, make a sandbar. Uh, you're, you're living on the Jersey Shore, my friends, and the ocean, you think it's not coming, but it is. And in the end, the ocean will come. Just as all of these, call them what you want, uh, uh, on-demand services, clever uses of untapped resources, they're coming. Uh, you can slow them down. You can try and regulate them. You can even try to force them or remind them how to be, uh, as Yokai said, social, more social, more beneficial for society. Um, and I think that can be a good thing. So, so maybe that's what I should be busy with. That's what we should look for more often. But it does seem like, you know, there is no stopping this stuff. Uh, people embrace it. So enough people eventually will embrace it all until it all goes bad and, you know, we, we become, uh, we break down as a society and then we live in Mad Max and, uh, we, we fight for gas and Furiosa drives giant trucks and we cheer or something. Okay. So the good news, of course, I like to leave you with a little good news is that as you well know, uh, there are beautiful, interesting, fun connections, uh, things that happen because of this internet of ours. Uh, we can point to the listener slash podcaster relationship, but we can also point to, I've had such wonderful experiences with Blah Blah Car for many years. Um, I'm not saying they became my best friends, but they gave, there are people who are such a pleasure to talk to once or on multiple occasions to get to know a little bit. So there's still plenty of good to go around, but yeah. Does that continue as we go forward? And, you know, this brings me to actually a few podcast recommendations as we hit the end of the show here. Um, on this very topic, the podcast I recommend is Shampoo and Booze. Uh, you may recall my dear friends and recent guests on this show, Jay and Ryan. And Shampoo and Booze is their podcast about their Airbnb work. They have a house in Virginia. It's beautiful. I slept there uh, over Christmas. I loved it. And, um, it, it's such an amazing life that they've put together and they tell stories of their Airbnb house and what they're doing and how they're doing it and, and what they're learning along the way. You'd think there wouldn't be much to talk about, but there is plenty to talk about, including their, their new house. They've got two houses. And I know that Jay and Ryan listening to this program would have so many counter, not just arguments, but examples of how much humanity there is because that is indeed one of their specialties and how much joy and benefits there are to the not only they themselves as the hosts uh, as the service providers but the people who stay with them so you know definitely something to add uh, to this a big important piece to this whole discussion um, also I want to include radio open source for uh, Christopher Lydon lately has been taking a deeper and more layered look at what's happening in the U.S. these days, especially when it comes to democracy and people's ideas. What, why, who are they choosing? Why are they choosing them? What is going on? And I know that it's a little exhausting political discussions right now. Uh, but what I love about Radio Open Source is they bring the guests, and they Chris always asks these these questions that sort of come before the the mainstream arguments that are sort of done to death uh and i and i love it i highly recommend what he's been doing lately i highly recommend what he's always done so uh go listen to radio open source and lastly uh this one's from wnyc last time i checked in new york it's called note to self the note to self podcast anush samarodi she's wonderful as a host and as a thinker 
And this show comes back to that question that is underlying here, our relationship with technology. Uh, when it's good, when it's bad, when it's in between, what does it mean for adults, for kids, for the elderly? So many questions about you and your technology, even exercises and how to sort of take the power back if you feel like you've been losing power. Um, and just, you know, it's interesting because it's a good blend of learning, but also challenging yourself to try something different through through a podcast, believe it or not. Uh, so those are my recommendations for today. I'll put links in the show notes. That's going to be up on citizenreporter.org. Um, I might write something on this topic. I don't know because, again, one of the problems of the internet, you know, so many people write about this and podcasts for that matter, that, you know, how how useful is this contribution of mine? You know, it's a tiny, tiny drop in a bucket full of water. I'm not giving up hope on on communicating. It's just, it's small. And I realize it's small. I'm pleased to be able to share it with people who are open-minded, who are interested. Uh, that part still matters a lot. But, uh, but you know, there's so much talking going on, right? It's, it's, sometimes I just want to shut up, believe it or not. So, But I'm, I'm glad that I, I could do a podcast and have you guys along for the ride. I want to mention Realities, the Realities podcast. That's my new show. It still hasn't left the ground. Episode one is up. Episode two is in the can, as we say. It's a beautiful episode with Shafir Rahman, a wonderful documentary maker. He's been in the refugee camps in Calais. He's been interviewing the river people of Bangladesh. He just has a talent for bringing topics that few others would dare take the time and the risks and he brings it. And I'm not talking about the risks in the glamorous sort of war reporter. No, he's with people who are not uh, at war or in any real news newspaper. He's there with, with real, real life, really, and some very difficult stories and amazing stories. And lastly, of course, my program that is alive and kicking, Source Code Berlin. Uh, we're working on right now the 15th anniversary of German Wikipedia. How did this happen? What was going on back then? A little bit of history to go with our reality. And it's connected to this question of, you know, the social, dare I use the word, economy uh, and the magic that used to happen, still happens, but does get lost in today's internet. Uh, but there it is still in the form of Wikipedia. So that's sourcecode.berlin. And there it is. We've arrived. Uh, I haven't even looked at the screen in a while. Oh, there we are. Okay, up near 47 minutes. I'll go out with a, a nice little tune from my dear friend Maita and the band Neighbor. I'll catch you next time. Thanks so much for listening as we crawl our way on the CTRP to episode 500. Uh, we will get there. I don't know when, but uh, stay tuned. Stay subscribed, and I'll talk to you soon. See ya. See ya.
Thank you. 